The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of Cinemax's The Nick Podcast. Each week we bring you inside the latest episode with the people who make it happen. And this week we're talking about how visual effects transforms The Nick from set to screen. I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And I am Chris Sullivan. And today we'll be talking about episode four, entitled Wonderful Surprises. And we have a special guest who helped make Dr. May's face go up in flames, visual effects supervisor Leslie Robson Foster. But before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about some of the other things that happened in the episode. Specifically, Sully, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the scene where you and Harriet leave the prison. Yeah, the net goes to Staten Island. Yes. And after that, we'll go for a nice warm piece of pie on the way home. Home? You're staying with me. I got my place all fixed up, put an extra bed in the parlor for you, had a lady down the hall make a curtain to go around it. You want me to live with you? You're joking. No jokes, Harry. You need a place to live, and I'm offering it. There were there were two two days on this on this season that were almost unbearably cold, and uh, and that was one of them. That was a, an amazing location, but it it could not have been colder. And and you can see it on your guys' face as you as you do the take. But what was what was great about it was that the the truck worked that time because we were talking with Michael Jortner and Peter Guffman how the truck didn't work because of the cold. Yeah, the the uh, accelerator and the brake and the and all of the controls are are, are what some people may have seen on, on a typical uh, uh, golf cart. Um, but it was it was amazing because I didn't even realize that the first vehicles were electric long before gas and oil uh, uh, took over these these early vehicles. And I didn't even realize it until the end of season one when we were flipping through that amazing prop, the um, the Sears catalog, and. And the tag, what was the tagline? All you need is is a an electrical outlet and a and a sense of adventure. Wasn't that the uh... yes? Yeah. And then you make the steering wheel motion, which <laughs> yeah. And then I do the steering wheel motion that was really uh, charming and a and a great acting choice. It was, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, and the irony is that steering wheels were very rare, so you were right. almost a futurist because before then they used tillers almost like a, right. like on a boat. So that's really an impressive thing. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so we, we we were doing take after take of pulling away, and and we got actually the the thing ran out of battery right as we we finally got the shot, but it, it worked all day like a like a real trooper. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you did say that you were surprised by the fact that that these cars were. Um, electric, but electricity had really the electrical engine was much more evolved and developed at this point than the internal combustion engine. So, ninety-eight percent of the cars in Manhattan or in New York were electric. Um, very, very few were gasoline powered because gasoline really wasn't a thing then. Um, some ran on kerosene. Eventually, they would run on steam, like little locomotives. But at this time, you literally could pull into any garage or or different garages around town and they'll unbolt the battery from the bottom and put on a fresh charged one. And what if it runs out of electricity? Yeah, there's places all over. Swap the battery off the bottom in a jiff. Bolt on a full one and I'm on my way. 
No more hooves to the head. <laughs> no more tacking up. No more horse shit. <laughs> I doubt that. And the irony is that Tesla, about a year and a half ago, um, did this demonstration with Elon Musk where he took a Tesla and he showed how they did they could do exactly that. And he was selling this as something they want to do in the future, which is you won't even have to charge your battery. They'll charge them for you and you'll just swap them off the bottom. Um, and you think, my God, that, what a modern thing that Tesla's doing. And it's literally 115 years old. Um, right. So it's it's really sort of cool to find out all these things that are sort of coming around again a second time. Um well, so, and, and with, and I'm sure you you have a better idea of, of what happened, but it was it's all it, it all must have to do with with power and money because the entire world was electrifying. We see in the first season, you know, they were going away from gas and away from oil and going to electric light bulbs and things like that. Everything in the world was going electric, except cars went from electric to combustion, which must must be the gas and oil industry. Some some wealthy. Uh, syndicate of, of, of people who yeah. wanted to make millions, right? We're getting there. It's Rockefeller. Um, right. But uh, it, it, we do start with that. In this episode, when the showalters tell Cornelia that uh, Philip is heading off to Lima, Ohio, what we learn is that, that their interests in uh, kerosene that they've, that they've refined from oil are in trouble because everyone's moving to uh, electricity and it's true. What happened was Edison and, and, and Tesla and the electricity wars, which is a whole other subject, um, the country was electrifying at a, at, a, at a massive rate. And, you know, you no longer had to go buy kerosene. You no longer had to have this dangerous flammable liquid in your house. You no longer had to have a mess or a smell or a little smoke coming off of that. And it was safer and, and gave better light. And Rockefeller was in real trouble at this time because – this was the center of his fortune, and we hadn't gotten to a place where there was any other use for this 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 weird black goop coming out from under the ground. We have on the show with us visual effects supervisor Leslie Robson Foster, who made the city look like 1900, who made the graveyards look like 1900, who who helps enhance all of the um, the surgeries. So we want to welcome her to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. We are very happy to have you. Um, I think I would like to start off by talking about the one of the great effects of this episode, which is the explosion and burning of the late Dr. Mays's face. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to have you assigned to me. You'd be mine, so to speak. I could be very helpful in securing a long future for you here at the Nick. You know, there's different ways to kill people. Um, and I often come to you and say, I'd like to kill someone this way. And then you say, oh, I, I can do that. And, um, and so when, when we decided to kill Maze this particular way... Did you know how you were going to attack it, or do you have to start talking to other departments about how each one wants to do it? Well, I, I first went and had a look for ether explosions just because I didn't really know what they would look like and realized they were very uh, sharp and horrible. And on YouTube, you can find people putting ether inside old tires 
to get them off like big truck tires. So they would pump ether into the tire and it would burst and everybody would fall down and it was a big mess. That was the only ether explosion I could find. So I figured if it was in your face, it would be very horrible. Wait, are, are these you, kids? Are these people doing this today? Like they would. Yeah, they do it today on do it on purpose to to separate a tire from what do you call the middle the of the rim? A, the rim of a big truck thing, wow. and that's how they get them off. But they, it doesn't go well often, and um, uh, it's so sharp and and um, aggressive, and and it's not like a romantic, fiery uh, explosion. It's um, there isn't any smoke or anything like that. So, you know, we took a bit of artistic license as well with uh, the flames. You know, when the explosion happens, he's cauterizing, right? Yes. Um, the wound there. So there is a spark already. So I, I thought it would be fun to um, to make it be really sharp and, uh, and nasty. And I went to Justin, who is the special effects makeup guy. And um, we made a... I asked him to make a head cast of the actor who were playing Maze. So he made me a head cast and then he made me a, um, a latex skin layer. Um, and then I got the special effects props people to drill into the head and fill it full of chicken parts and blood and what have you. And then layer the latex skin on top of it. And then they had a flamethrower. So we had a separate unit and after you'd shot the actors doing all the dialogue and all the bits we then brought the dummy in put the latex skin on it in the same sort of position as Mays was leaning over the the person he was operating on and then we pointed the flamethrower at it and as well as compressed air which blew the pieces of flesh off and uh, gave us a lovely burst of of blue flames there and then a separate layer to make sort of char marks on his uh, smock and then we did the same thing from behind because there's two shots, one where he gets it in the face and then when you cut round the back of him and he's on fire and his moustache ends are on fire and all of that <laughs> stuff. So we, we shot all those elements and then we put them all together afterwards. And then then you go in and you just like, you're kind of painting with a brush almost on, on the computer and and just trying to digitally enhance it? I mean, how does that work? Um, so it's kind of a mixture of 3D computer graphics and 2D just painting, as you say. Mm -hmm. So we got the footage and then we, we've got the head that sort of matches. So you line up the element that we shot with a fire and you got the actor um, and you put them together and then you can, you can sort of, using a, uh, a mesh kind of tool, you can wrap the flames and the stuff that we shot as an element around the real actor hmm. um, and uh, and then I had to decide just how much of his face was going to come off and were you going to see inside to skeleton right. or were you going to see muscle or <laughs> what were you going to see and I've blown lots of people's faces off yeah. during my career yeah. and um, sometimes with shotguns and all sorts of things so you know you have to really decide about how deep you're going to go with it and I think the rest of it isn't based in any kind of reality, reality. at all. Right. Do you I remember mean, do you... the first time you blew someone's face off? What was that like? That must be special. <laughs> you know, it was lovely. When you, when you pop, on... popped your blow-your-face-off cherry, if you will. It was on Boardwalk Empire, uh -huh. and um, I had to shoot somebody in the eyeball. Okay. It was a good one. Um, Manny, he was called. Mm -hmm. I and, remember, yeah. Uh, we did a, a similar kind of thing. Harrow walks up to him and shoots him point-blank in the face. Um, so that was my first one. That's about four years ago, and I've been perfecting it ever since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things that 
people need to understand is that our location manager and his team are, are extraordinarily important. But when we come into a place like the exterior of the Nick, often we'll go into um, lots of different area, uh, apartments and remove like air conditioners or satellite dishes or something to make it look, you know, but there's so much we can't remove, you know, power lines and, you know, we try to get street lights out of there. And then you come in and you have to you have to spot every single thing in every single frame. What is that like for you to have to go in and find every modern anomaly in every shot? Is is it is it a skill? Do you just get used to it? Do you live in fear that people are going to be like, uh, "There's an airplane in 1900"? Yeah, it's a it's quite a process. I have a team of people, a producer and some artists and an editor. And uh, we we do it first. We go through um, and looking for the air conditioners and all those different things. And then um, Stephen will spot some in the next stage, always the one that we didn't spot, of course. <laughs> um, and then HBO QC might spot one that we didn't spot. It just goes on forever, and you really could go on forever. What's more difficult, uh, working on a street scene or working on like something like uh, the maze explosion? Oh, the street, definitely, just because you know what a street's supposed to look like and you know about, I mean, you just naturally, you know about perspective and things being in the distance. Um, And, you know, also, if you're looking for air conditioners and airplanes and modern cars and everything, that seems accessible and, like, everybody can join in with saying what's wrong with that. But I challenge anybody to know what an ether explosion looks like in an operating room, so... I feel like I could take some license with that, and that's um, that's a bit more creative and fun and forgiving. Do you specialize in period? I mean, or, or is that just something that's just organically happened? You know, that's what happens to people. You get a period job, and then you get another period job. I'm desperate for a spaceship. I'm so desperate <laughs> for an alien, I can't tell you. <laughs> so if you could work on that, Jack. That's next season 28. <laughs> <laughs> the Nick in space. I yes. know. I'd be grateful. Um, but I'm working on um, an HBO show called Vinyl at the moment, which is set in the 70s. It's a bit later. So um, I've got some fun stuff to do in that one. You started in this world where computer, you know, technical computer, you know, design and graphics and, and, and effects were incredibly expensive and incredibly, you know, hard to do and not terribly great at the time. So... To the point where now you're just sitting on the staff of a, a, a part of the show where you just routinely are just racing things. How how has that evolution been for you know for people in your position? Um, you know, I started with film and actually doing cell animation and on the news and some of the shows I worked on, we would actually do the maps and the charts on paper and shoot them uh, as individual cells like animation, wow. and they would get shot on 16mm ectochrome and developed that day and then um, actually broadcast whilst they were running through a film machine. It, it, it's only 30 years ago, but it sounds just antiquated, doesn't it? And in my time at the BBC, I saw that change over from film to a thing which is the forerunner of kind of Photoshop and what have you now. So it's really lovely to have known what the uh, electronics are trying to mimic because you never cease to be amazed at how fast you can do something or how there isn't a generational quality loss with layers. Because now, you know, a typical shot in the Nick, 
where we were doing, you know, a map painting for a street or something would have 70 layers in it with atmosphere and cobblestones and things going away and extra horses and extra people and signs and weather and stuff. Um, Whereas when I came to the States for the first time, I was at Industrial Light and Magic and we were still doing um, film opticals. So, you know, 10 layers was really pushing it. Hmm. Um, and then you could see the matte lines a little bit. If you right. look back at yeah. Star Wars and things, it doesn't look so good. The, the change is just amazing. I can't imagine where it's going to go. And the fact that I can run off and mock up something for you guys and bring it back downstairs to the studio later that day um, is really great and really good fun and, and um, so nice to get uh, feedback straight away and then incorporate it without having to go all the way through to the finish. That's the amazing thing about your job is that it, it's constantly evolving. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, we're, we're always trying to write new things, but, you know, basically writing is writing, but, but, but your craft, ha- you, have to keep, you have to keep learning. I mean, is that, do you find that thrilling? Do you find it, is it, is it hard? Is it... You know, it's, it's completely thrilling, and, it, and it's really um, good fun to, to keep up. I don't want to stop keeping up. It's like every three months there's something new that will make it better or different. But, you know, what's great fun is coming across writers who will just write what they want to see. You know, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing sometimes. <laughs> and if people get caught up, you know, that's too expensive or, you know, we better not write that because we can't do it. It's uh, it's kind of sad, you know. It's really nice for you just to write. I want writers and directors to just say what they want and I'll go figure it out. It's really nice to use people for the, you know, for that kind of thing and I'll go find out what the technology is and I don't know you hear directors say that they couldn't make a movie like James Cameron couldn't make Avatar until he had seen that motion capture stuff come up and what have you so I think that um, you just it's just great to keep up because then you'll keep working as well well I remember we were on set last year and I knew that there was a character that we wanted to kill and it was actually Spate and no big spoiler alert Spate dies in the uh, in the beginning of this season, and we were talking about how we were going to do it. Um, it had been in the planning for, you know, since season one, and what I remember is that I said, well, there's this big steeple up, or this giant clock tower, and I said, well, I, you know, can can we have him fall out and hit the ground? And, like, you, you almost looked at me like you have no imagination, little boy. And you were like, what we can do is, there's, see that see that little outcropping there? He can hit the outcropping, and then he can kind of go tumbling off, and then he can land on the top of the spikes of the fence. And I was like, oh, my God, I love you. Like, like, <laughs> like it was the most romantic moment of my life, I think. Because I was like, oh, my, ev- everything is possible. Do you, do you still find it kind of delicious to, to create all this really wonderful, you know, to take it beyond what even, certainly what I thought or Michael thought? Oh, it's so great when you, you're allowed or, you know, the writing lets you join in a bit. It's it's so much fun. And um, to be able to go off and shoot practical elements is uh, the most fun for me, you know, to shoot, to get with the special effects people and make a dummy and fill it full of things and all of those things. It's it's really exciting. And for me, because I'm a, an on-set person, um, shooting those bits uh, is is the most fun. My favorite effect, and I, I just it still makes me gasp, is when Thackeray takes the nose piece and glasses off of Abigail in his office in that scene. I think it's a second episode, Michael. It's uh, episode three of season one. And and Stephen shot it in a profile, 
and there's just no nose there, and it, there's still something your brain can't compute about that. Can you give us a little understanding of how you can do something that extraordinary? So, you know, if you if you take something away, if you imagine taking your nose away and you're looking at it in a profile, you'll need to be able to see what's behind it. So you need a clean plate, we call it, um, so the actor would have to duck out of the way a little bit um, so that I can see the wall and the scenery behind her. So there's that. And then I also need... Because she spoke and winced and um, Thackeray put the glasses on her, I um, I needed to really have a a good way to track her muscles and her lips because if you take your nose away, your mouth doesn't work as well because <laughs> there's no sort of anchor here. This is all floppy, The whatever you call this bit here. Um, there's a name for it, but I don't yeah. know what it is. I think it's called the nib. I could be wrong, but... I'm, I'll, I'll Google it while you continue on with the story. Okay. Um, so anyway, we had to put dots all over the actor's face there. We had tried to put a prosthetic piece where the edge of the wound might be, but it actually ended up hindering her a little bit and hindering us a little bit, so I painted it away uh, in the end to make a sort of very ragged edge of the hole. And then, again, I worked with special effects and they made me a sculpture of what, that might look like inside, just a, a plain latex one. And then I was able to photograph that and then just sort of stick that photograph of that hole on top of where I'd cut her nose off. I know it sounds all difficult and everything, but as long as you've got something to repair the pixels of, of where her nose was, then for profile and then you've got what you need to, to take it away. Now that becomes harder when you look straight at her because what do you do with the nose? So that that was much harder to take it away in the front. It's more effective in the side, but in the front it was it was pretty difficult to, um, you know, just scribble a flat uh, thing across her face and then make it look hollow. And then you also had to extend Thackeray's instrument that he places in there, correct? We did. You know, it was really nice because... Uh, the actor would, um, when he went with half of the scalpel towards her, she sort of winced and, and wrinkled her face up. Mm-hmm. So we were able to uh, make one of the instruments, the scalpel, touch a piece of computer-generated flesh, sort of make her wince. Like we matched it all up so that when she wrinkled, we were touching a nasty bit uh, inside. So it sort of we retrofitted in something that would make her wince um, as well. So it was it was nice to be interactive with that too. It's a yeah. whole other performance that people might not even be aware of. Yeah, she You're was... literally involved in the scene. You right, made a yeah. choice that, that nobody else at the time was aware of that that added added to it. That's that's amazing. That's Jennifer Farron, and she is just the best. She's great. Um, when we saw her do that scene and then another scene... Um, we realized in season, you know, that that she had to come back. Like, I wanted to see her. I just wanted to see her and Thackeray more. You know, those scenes were incredibly informative. Um, and by the way, Sully, the area of the face, the 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 two sides are called the filtral columns, and the little dimple in the middle is called the filtral dimple. Just thought I'd let you know that. Yeah. I knew, I knew that. I was just seeing if you knew that. Yeah, and I'm sure I, I mispronounced it from whatever I, I found here on Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, do you fear because you know sometimes we'll go back and we'll watch something that's maybe fifteen or twenty years old and with VFX and and now they they just don't look very good. Do you fear that there's going to be a version of television, four K TV or something, whereby you'll go back and you'll look ten years, you know, in the past and you'll say, God, those seventy those seventy layers that we did, we thought were so good in two thousand fifteen, but wow, I mean, do you fear that? 10, 20 years from now, we're all going to look at it and go, just doesn't look good on the new, you know, cyber TVs or whatever. You know, it's a beauty of working for Steven Soderbergh. He's future-proofing. He was shooting with a camera that was 6K, which is, you cannot broadcast that yet, and neither will you be able to for a while. And so we were finishing very high resolution. Um, f- I, I don't know if it was for that purpose. I don't know what the future-proofing language came from him. So um, we had to finish it to such a standard that I think it's good for a bit. That's great. Wow. Let me ask you this. You say that there, there are these you know, advancements that come along in your field every three months. Something new has, has come. And as, as Jack and Michael are over there working on new storylines for, for whatever project they're writing, is there something that has come along, some technology or some instrument or something that... Uh, that you are dying to implement that you have yet to have the, had the chance? Um, you know, the motion capture things mm-hmm. and facial things mm-hmm. um, are coming along such a long way and quickly, and I think that kind of stuff. And I don't know, I can still see when it's uh, like Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. You can see that that's, you know, a person who is then wrapped in a CG character. I'm looking for that. Um, to be able to take that further. I'm looking forward to a complete CG. I don't want it to be a, pe- a people, a person, because, mm-hmm. you know, I like the people. I don't see the sure. point in that, but sure. some creature that... We appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, uh, an, an alien or, yeah. um, you know... An, On an, your spaceship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or an animal or something like that that uh, you can't really work with that, um, that we could... Uh, uh, manipulate and make do things that you wouldn't be able to get that thing to to really do. So that technology um, I'd like to to work with. All right. Do you hear that, Mike? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All Golem, right. season three. <laughs> do, Leslie, do you have a favorite um, thing you did on the neck? Um, you know, in the boat, mm-hmm. when Thak's inside the sailboat with Gallinger, mm-hmm. uh, the spoons rattling, the sound effect that reminds him of the boat. Mm-hmm. So the boat didn't move terribly much when we were on set, and um, Stephen had us animate all the things in the boat, um, the hmm. spoons. Oh, like that went like back the and eggs forth, and stuff. And the eggs and things we huh. we helped um, move them around in time to what he wanted them to oh, be. Amazing. It was very subtle and you would never know. I mean, that's, you know, they call us supporting visual effects and right. that kind of thing um, really helps with story and you would you would never know. And um, so we took, we got the real spoons and stuff off Peter and Michael and uh, modelled them in 3D and then uh, went over the top of the ones that were in the boat that were just still. And we animated them ever so gently and a few of the ropes and some other stuff. Um, so th- that kind of thing is very satisfying because it it really gets you to what Stephen was after. You know, he was after help in that part of the story, and that's really right. good fun. It's not flashy, but it's um, it's really nice yeah, to be I a part Im- of the storytelling. That's amazing because that's one of those things that 
I would never have thought was a was a visual effect. Um, I guess my I was going to ask you: Have you ever, and you, certainly not on our show, but have you ever had a situation where an actress or an actor comes to you and says, "Look, I have a nude scene, or I have this, or I have a zit, or I have a this. I need you to enhance my this or my body." Or, <laughs> How often does that happen? Because we have a wonderful nude scene in our in our thing, which is clearly all natural, and it's Bertie losing his virginity in this episode, and you know the, and it's sort of this wonderful moment. It's actually a scene that we wrote as an audition scene for season one. Um, I think we were sitting outside the Nick set, and we just dashed it off because Carmen Cuba needed something for an audition scene. But I knew it was something I wanted to do in the future, and so Bertie losing his virginity is actually a scene that was written almost. Maybe sixteen months earlier, but when you have a nude scene, or you have an an actor or an actress in that vulnerable situation. Have they ever requested, or have you ever had to embellish, um, enhance? I have lots to say about that. <laughs> um, sometimes they have nudity clauses, and sometimes they don't. So sometimes you have to put in, and sometimes you have to take out, and sometimes people will wear patches that you have to paint away and then replace things that you can't see and um, sometimes personal grooming wasn't quite as far forward as it might be now so <laughs> they'll be uh, wearing um, wigs for want Merkins. of a better yeah, Merkins, Merkin, for yeah. want of a better thing and they somehow rather because they go over modesty patches they never kind of lie flat so I often have to do that work mm-hmm. and then yeah it happens a lot and people have got Scars where they've had implants and they want those gone so nobody will know those implants. And or something like an appendectomy scar. Yeah, that, and tattoos, that, yeah. a lot of tattoo removals. Um, so, yes, I've put it on and I've taken it off and I've enhanced it and I've squished it. And I've been, I've been begging for a nude scene and they just refuse <laughs> to give me one. I've heard stories, though, I'm not going to name any names, but of that they've actually had to put weight on actresses because they're too thin. I don't know if you've ever... oh, I've done the opposite mostly. Um, Can like you do that to me, people. please? <laughs> While you're walking around, just follow me around everywhere. That'd be great. Uh, With plates, plates, yeah. Right, it's plates. just a hologram the hologram of Jack from behind <laughs> yeah, yeah. to change the shape. Yeah, but it's gonna... it, it's an interesting thing because you know these actors really put themselves out there for us, and you know, and you want them to be seen in the best light because you know. Oh, the harsh light isn't fair, but at the same time, you want reality. And I, what I love about Stephen is he he really wants it to be as close to the real thing as possible. Oh, well, every time he he wants it to be as close, but I don't think he would ever let an actor really suffer, you know, in in those uh, love scenes or nude scenes at all. I think he would make them comfy first if if they weren't I don't think if they were uncomfortable with that stuff I think everybody would know and it would be taken care of ahead of time so I, I've never had to you know really add great big body parts or anything <laughs> because people were covered up and he wanted them to be uncovered yeah it really is an extraordinary future that you know it's something that is so you know making something so in the past put together by something that's so you know, modern and 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 incredible. Um, in terms of your team, I mean, you have a whole group of folks. Um, what are their different responsibilities? Can you just quickly give us a, an idea? Because I know you have a lot of folks. Each person seems to have a have a purpose that I don't ever seem to understand. 
Certainly. Um, so there's a producer who uh, is Parker, and his responsibility is um, the money and the budget. Then there's um, a coordinator who gets all the shots from the editor, which we also have. We have a visual effects editor. They um, have to work out the exact length of the shot that we're going to touch, get the raw footage from Stephen's people because he's editing his show. So he's got a person who, uh, you know, does all of the work that an editor would do while Stephen's shooting. That's Corey. I have a bunch of artists who have all got different skills. Um, a person who just does temporary visual effects so that we can all agree on a design. And then a map painter who's actually painting those, digitally painting those fabulous backgrounds and putting leaves on the trees when there aren't any and helping me shoot those elements and putting them together. And then we'll have compositors who'll actually stick all the things together. And then we have a data wrangler um, who would be on set and get lens information so that if we're making something in computer-generated world, it would match exactly the photographic lenses. And then there's another 200 people or so working at different vendors all around the world and in New York to actually do the shots. So there there's really are a lot of us. Wow, so it's a very inexpensive process. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember a friend of Michael and mine, Martha Coolidge, once explained to us when we were young in our careers, there is no un unimportant person on a movie crew. And, you know, everyone who's there has a purpose and that they have to bring their A game. And your department has been such an extraordinary part of making the rest of it look so good. So thank you so much for, for coming here and being a part of this because it's been I, – I, I want your, you and your department to get their due. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll have your award sent to you. <laughs> Our podcast was produced by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. Make sure to check out next week's episode entitled Whiplash at 10 p.m. this Friday, only on Cinemax. And then join us once again for the podcast when our guest will be our location manager, Rob Stream. All those great exteriors and many of the interiors were found by him and his team. Hey, if you like what you hear, let us know. Give us a review in iTunes and share the word on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where you can find more great content under At The Nick. Did you know President Obama, Amy Schumer, Chris Rock, Steven Spielberg are all fans, to name a few? Let's create some more. Help spread the word about the show. So until next time, I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And I'm Chris Sullivan. As always, thanks for listening.